Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January. Sadie Hoagland's new book, American Grief in Four Stages, is a collection of short fiction and asks the question, why does our country do so little for the bereaved? Why do we only have empty cliché to address the grief of others? Why do we expect people to just get over insurmountable tragedy? The collection imagines trauma as a space in which language fails us and narrative escapes us. These stories play with form and explore the impossibility of LG and the inability of our culture to communicate grief, sympathy, outside of a cliche. City Hoagland is, has a Ph.D. in fiction from University of Utah, an M.A. in uh, creative writing and fiction from UC Davis. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in the Alice Blue Review, uh, South Dakota Review, Sakura Review, Grist Review, and many others. Uh, she's a former editor of Quarterly West, currently teaches fiction at University of Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, the website is SadieHoagland.com. Uh, Sadie Hoagland, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on the on the program. Uh, very interesting uh, new collection. I'm enjoying uh, reading the book. Uh, should mention you're a, a Utah native, Salt Lake City native. Are yes, you? I am. I grew up in Holiday. In Holiday, all right. Um, and, uh, and then uh, off to college elsewhere, and back to University of Utah for your PhD. Now in in Louisiana. I, that's. Yes. I'm curious. What's the is there culture shock living in Louisiana? There has been a lot of culture shock. It's very different um, in in pretty much every possible way, both climate and culture and the sort of, this is a very um, festive culture. They they say, laissez les bons temps rouler, which means let the good times roll. It's sort of, they don't work on Friday afternoons, <laughs> which uh, which is very different than sort of the, the shoulder to the grind industry model of Utah. That's, well, that sounds like maybe I ought to move out to Louisiana. That's That sounds attractive. <laughs> Yeah, you should come down for Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> uh, so you, you've said that you did not set out to write a collection of stories about grief and loss. In fact, you go on to say, I think to do so would have been almost overwhelming. Uh, tell us about that first story. I think uh, uh, the title story came first, did it? Yes, uh, American Grief in Four Stages. Yeah, I started writing that. The, that story started with the first line, and um, the first line is, we knew my sister was, different after all the day she got murdered. And it was a line that just came into my head and and was too compelling of a thread not to follow. Um, And I think one of the reasons that I started, well, one of the reasons I started thinking about this is I'd had five or six very close friends have um, immediate family members uh, commit suicide, including my husband and my best friend, um, their family members. And I, I just felt continually at a loss for what I could say to them um, how we could describe what we were going through to other people. Um, there's something about certain kinds of loss that is, um, is is extra isolating. And so I was looking for ways to allow the reader to feel that sort of shock and to feel that sort of the extreme circumstance of that trauma. And so that line for me was something that, that had that effect. And so... Um, it was a way into the story for me. And then it made sense from there to think about this narrator who is young and who has lost a sibling um, as her being the sort of one that's trying to hide her pain through her language but also try to structure their grief experience. So in that story, she's trying to, to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to break this grief down into stages, and first we're going to get rid of her stuff. And and so she has this kind of concrete plan, and, and of course there's an inevitable failure as 
as the loss catches up with her. And uh, she has trouble articulating the loss. In fact, there's a family rule, I think, that we don't talk about the, mm-hmm. the, the dead sister. Uh, and, and I mean, that's typical, right? We, it, it's very difficult to, to articulate loss that deep. Yes, I think really it is. And I don't think our culture encourages people to try. I think our culture encourages people to move on um, and to grieve privately. And so it's been interesting since this book came out in November, I have had a lot of conversations with people who have been hungry for the opportunity to talk about their grief and their experience and feel that there isn't much opportunity to do so. Um, And yet you're right in that story. She says, okay, we're going to one of the rules is we're not going to talk about the sister that's dead. Um, and I think that what's interesting in that story is that she's kind of stating it out loud and making it a thing, but that's actually a kind of an unwritten rule, I think, in a lot of, in a lot of people's go- coping with grief is they, they decide that, that silence is the way to go, that talking is too painful. Um, but for some people, talking seems to be a really necessary part of the healing process. Um, this is American Grief in Four Acts, the, the title of that story, the, 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 that's the title of the collection. And y- you made reference to this. Um, I wonder if you could expand on this. Uh, our culture, American culture, uh, I guess we have the funeral and then we're expected to move on. What What is it about American culture, do you think? I think there's something in our story, um, our, our cultural history of resilience, that we are um, a people that sees ourselves as, you know, we just, we go through these things and we move on. Um, that's certainly how we encourage, you know, war veterans to act when they come home. Um, and it's, it's also how we expect people to move on from tragedy. We don't have a place for them um, to express it. And we police grief. Every culture polices grief, I should say. But we police it in a particularly negative way. So whereas other cultures will have things for the bereaved to do that are acceptable, such as, uh, Hindu culture will, will you know, um, dictate that the bereaved wear white for 14 days and um, bathe twice daily and eat vegetarian meals. Um, we police it in a negative way by just saying what not to do. So, you know, don't make a big show of it. You have to go back to work. Um, and there isn't beyond, you know, a, a certain period of casserole delivery and, um, of course, the funeral, there isn't a lot of resources for someone that's struggling that way. And I think that um, part of it is just the tradition of our culture. And, and I should say this is a very Anglo-Saxon point of view. Of course, um, we live in a very multicultural country, and I'm in, in the home of jazz funerals, which is, which is a, another expression of grief that's quite different. Um, but, but in terms of the Anglo-Saxon suburban culture I grew up in, that's the silence that was encouraged. Uh, tell me about the jazz funerals. Is that do you think that's a little more healthy? Is it, I don't know handle things in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, so jazz funerals uh, involve second lining, which is a sort of uh, celebration through the streets um, of music played and a, a parade and festive like feel, uh, celebrating the life of the person. Um, and I think it does allow for a little more variance in the expression of grief, because that's one of the things that I, I have talked about um, um, with people about this book, too, is that, is that grief is oftentimes not just one feeling, right? It's many feelings. Um, it's not just sadness and loss and depression. It's also, as, as 
Kubler-Ross pointed out in her five stages of grief. So it's also anger, but it's also sometimes relief if the person has been suffering. Um, it can also be at times joyful, a, a joyful remembrance or celebration of the of the person's life. Um, so I think that it it does allow for a little bit more variation. That I'm not sure beyond the jazz funeral that there's um, there's much more support systems in place, but. You mentioned sort of the mandatory period of, of, of casserole delivery. Is, is that an oblique <laughs> reference to Utah culture? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, um, and I wonder what you would say. Are there variants in Utah culture and, and related to you know to grief and to uh, to grieving and the, and the you know uh, as opposed to American culture? Or do you think it's uh, fairly similar? I think it's I think it's fairly similar. I do think perhaps that Utah is a little bit on the in terms of the reserved and private nature of the culture. I also think that people are very afraid to um, show their weaknesses. Um, and I and when I was writing this book, Utah had the sixth highest suicide rate in the nation. So some of the and suicide is a topic in this book. So I think that part of it is is clearly showing. Um, a lack of resources for people suffering and, and people with mental illness. And, and that would have to be the bereaved as well, I would think. Hmm. Uh, you, you've said, um, I mean, this is depicted in stories as well, and you, you've articulated elsewhere, grief is not just one feeling. Uh, many stages and manifestations it could be, you know, very complicated. And you go on to say um, in this interview, ambivalence, feeling the opposite emotions at once, gets a bad name in our culture. Our culture tends to resist that, you say. I do. I think it confuses people um, because I think we often have those feelings like, oh, I'm both excited about something and I'm dreading something. Or I both love being a mother and I find it very difficult to be a mother and can't stand it sometimes. And I think we're afraid to express that ambivalence because what we're afraid people will hear is that, oh, you don't want to do that or you don't love your children or, or that they'll take it into some extreme place when, when what you mean is actually just that you have very complicated feelings about something. Um, and I think we're afraid of people misunderstanding us if we don't just express one sort of simple singular emotion and so I think it does get a bad name in our culture. And then I think it makes it harder because people that are feeling that ambivalence don't have necessarily um, a way to express it or feel the freedom to express it. You mentioned um, suicide. Unfortunately, you know, in a kind of extended family, you've uh, experienced a lot of suicide. And, um, oh, boy, it just happens a lot. Um, and that complicates the grieving process. It does, um, and I think because it's so wrapped up in, in guilt and anger um, and regret and if only I could have or what if this had happened or why did this happen, um, it's an incredibly complicated grief. And um, it's one of the things that this book is, is one of the reasons I wrote this book because as a writer I wanted to think about this uh, these kinds of events where uh, our habit and, and sort of my belief as a writer is, and the reason I write fiction is that is that we as a culture and as and this is kind of I think global even as a species, we have a tendency to use story um, to learn from each other to express our experiences, but also to understand our experiences. And so 
we'll, we'll kind of tell the story of our lives or we'll use micro-narratives about our identity. So um, we kind of all have our own origin myth about why we are who we are or what we, why we do what we do. And I think that it's really important in, in those um, instances of, of continuation of narrative to have that logic, and, and that helps inform our identity and our place in our community. But there are certain events that don't conform to logic. They just don't. Like, when someone commits suicide, there is no story that makes that make sense, or rather the story is mental illness, and that's not legible to a well mind. So it, it's very hard, I think, for people to find a way through that and over that. Um, and it's one of the reasons the book is called American Grief in Four Stages, because the fifth stage is acceptance, and I think sometimes that acceptance is relative, especially when you're dealing with something like suicide. And so you, you illustrate, you use this, right, the, the broken narrative, use this in some of these stories in very interesting ways. I wonder if you could, uh, I don't know, maybe pick one of the stories and, and tell us about that. Sure. So um, I'll talk about Warning Signs, which is the story of a, a a narrator whose uh, brother has committed suicide, and she is um, trying to figure out why. And so she's breaking her story into sort of theories, um, and so she's kind of trying to organize her narrative and 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 go about her grieving process through trying to figure out why. And so she talks about you know her first stage of trying to go to the bar with some um, local people and, and talk about you know why suicide might be on the rise and kind of come up with these different theories. Um, and then she lands finally on this theory that, um, that perhaps it was the cliches that he was using uh, that should have told her that something was wrong with him. So it's called warning sign because she feels as if they all failed to see a warning sign. Um, and so she's trying to figure out what it is. But then she ends up using that language to sort of call back to her brother and say, you know, please don't leave me out in the cold is the cliche she uses. Mm. Uh, by the way, is there uh, is there a short passage that uh, you'd you'd like to read? If you, if you have one immediately, we could we could do that now, or we could do it af- after the break. Give you a little time. Sure. Um, any story in particular? Uh, or uh, just, no, just any one that you'd like to pick. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to uh, read from the beginning of a story that um, that deals with a because there's a few things in here that, of course, as you uh, probably noticed that. Grief is, is expressed in many different ways in this piece, and not every story is about um, really heavy trauma. Um, this particular, a couple of the stories kind of think about loss in, in historical America, and this particular story takes place uh, not long after the Salem Witch Trials in um, Massachusetts. And so it's called Dementia 1692, and I'll just read the very beginning of it. We heard my mother scream just before daylight. The house was bathed in a blue pre-sunlight, and the color was the very sound of her wails. She had been trying to sit up with my younger sister, but had fallen asleep, and when she woke, my sister was cold. Her mouth opened just a little, even the red of the rash gone white. It was a year before that my sister and I had cracked open an egg on the scalloped side of a hand mirror. I cupped its two halves in my hands, pouring the yolk from one half shell to the other so that the white would drip heavily onto the glass. She held the pewter handle of the mirror and swirled the egg like batter on a griddle, the way Tatuba had taught us to do if we wanted to see our future. Who will love us? We whispered to the glass. And I crossed my fingers behind my back that in the eggy mirror would appear the face of John Tucker, the blacksmith's son. We waited, watching heads together, and I could feel my sister's breath on my arm. 
I saw our twisted mouse in the mirror, and I giggled, but just then, Bets gasped and dropped the mirror, letting it fall where it landed, face down, but did not crack. Skull, she palmed her cheeks. I saw a skull. I rolled my, a- my eyes and picked up the mirror and wiped the soapy egg off with the frayed corner of my apron. The three-legged cat was already licking the floor clean. Really, I did, I did. She, dripped, she grabbed onto my arm, and I could see she really was afraid. Shh, I whispered without tenderness, for it was too late. The tall Indian stood in the doorway. Tatuba looked at the mirror and the eggshell on the table, one half spilling yellow, and clicked her tongue. My sister ran to her and told her what she'd seen, crying now, saying that she would surely die. Tatuba held her skirts soft and said softly, Nah, some witch fooling you. But before taking her into the kitchen for some milk, she turned to me and scowled. I stood alone and looked at the streaked mirror, its aging glass speckled black. I squinted hard but could see only my own pale face with its hook nose. My eyes the exact color of the mud that I had that morning scraped from my boot tread with a stick. And that's from Dementia 1692. By the way, we're uh, talking with Sadie Hoagland. She's uh, author of a collection it's called American Grief in Four Stages. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, story. This uh, One of the things you're doing here is, um, I guess, wondering... We tend to think of the Salem Witch Trials, you know, when they happened and not think about, well, what happened to people after, right? And you're you're thinking about, well, many years later, what did people yeah. feel about that? Yeah, I thought that that was a really compelling question to me. So two sort of questions led me to this story. One was this idea of the intersection of sort of magic and science. And now when people um, have early onset dementia, we have... Um, a medical community that has a very, um, you know, solid explanation for that um, and those behaviors, uh, but but in those days they didn't. Um, and so, what would that behavior have looked like? Um, what would that have seemed like to people who uh, believed more in magic and 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 in a more magical world? And the other question that that really struck me is that um, you know we today look back on that event as you know we have all sorts of theories of was it some sort of social hysteria. There's a theory that there was some sort of wheat germ that created this kind of social behavior of, uh, of you know, children and, and women freaking out and, and, you know, thinking that they were cursed. And, and then this sort of um, witch-hunting behavior of, of finding uh, lone women usually and, and sort of uh, punishing them. And so it was, it was this very intense short period of time, however, the witch trials. And so people did outlive them. And this story I, I did an immense amount of research on um, and read a lot about those times and was, was very compelled with this idea of people would have had ideas 20 years later as to what have happened. Um, and and it's, it's too bad we don't have a, an insight into what that is. And so, um, so I was sort of imagining these characters. Uh, the narrator is a young girl in the Salem Witch Trials and her mother... Um, and her survive them, and um, 20 years later, her mother has early onset Alzheimer's and um, explains it as if the witches are punishing her for her own um, complicity during the witch trials. Um, and the the narrator is trying to sort of come to grips with her own fear that she's had for her whole life that she actually might be a witch. <laughs> mm. um, the other thing you're, you're, you're doing here is uh, thinking about... I mean, we have explanations now for dementia. We 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 can wrap this in uh, language of science. Uh, they didn't have that at that point. No, they didn't, and um, and they, 
you know, they all came up with different ideas about what things were. And um, I think this is something Margaret Atwood, the writer, talks about being really interested in as well. I think it's something that, you know, even as far as we see Shakespeare's The Tempest, we're all thinking about, like, what magic, what role magic has. Um, and when science was not what it is today, magic had a large role in, in society's kind of explanations for things um, and understanding of things. Um, so if you couldn't find your way home, you know, it, you know, in that time, it probably seemed more likely to you that, the, that some sort of magic or curse had happened rather than that something was wrong with your brain. Mm. So you did a lot of research for this. What uh, what stood out to you in the it must have been interesting research? It was Tatuba, the the character I just mentioned is a real character um, who uh, suffered in the witch trials. She was um, from Barbados and uh, living in Salem, and was an advocate for white magic, and of course then was hung eventually. Um, but. There was really one figure, Cotton Mathers, who is a, a figure in American literature. He's often anthologized as part of our sort of American letters because he wrote extensively. But he also um, wrote a pamphlet on the identification of witches. And he was a, um, a very persuasive figure and was able to um, really, you know, frighten people about witches and, um, you know, had all these techniques for identifying possible witches. And um, the sort of, and we know this from history over and over again, but the sort of damage that one person, one particularly articulate and powerful person can do, he was a preacher, um, it is sort of, um, it's, it's terrifying. Mm. But what were, uh, I'm flashing on Monty Python as I would, <laughs> uh, <laughs> identifying the witch, you know. Does she, yeah. does she weigh the same as, uh, you know, as uh, what is it wood um yeah. but what what did cotton mathers say how do you identify a witch um well one of the references made to in the story is um sort of a, a third um nipple on the body he calls it a preternatural teat um that that's in a way of course there were all the ways that you probably have heard of that they would identify which is that you know if the person was innocent they would die um like oh a witch can um you know float in water even with stones on her feet, and then, oh, well, she wasn't a witch because she died, but um, those kinds of tests that they would do where the, the innocent would, had the had the person been a witch, they would have survived fire or drowning, but um, then they learn afterwards that the person's name is cleared, but of course much too late for the, for the person. Of course, we, you know, we look on this, it's, it's ridiculous uh, to us. I suppose there are things in our culture that would seem ridiculous to maybe future society? I think so. <laughs> I think that probably is, is definitely true. Um, I'm trying to think of anything. I don't know that I can and think of anything off the bat. But. It may not be apparent to us, right? It's, it probably was not apparent yeah. to them. Uh, I wonder, before we go to break, um, so uh, dementia is featured in this story, and uh, th- that's a particularly complicating uh, factor, uh, uh, grieving, you know, sort of br- pre-grieving, you know, the person's lost while still there. It really is. And um, this, uh, the narrator in the story, eventually, she goes blind as well um, and feels herself as sort of already at, you know, at a distance from society um, in, a, in a cognizant way. Um, and, and with her mother's loss, she, 
she also finds comfort in thinking of it as sort of the Tatuba's revenge, is what she she calls it. Um, when we're not using magic, <laughs> as we tend not to these days, um, it is a very complicated grief because, as you probably know, there's a lot of symptoms that you know accompany dementia. Some of them are quite drastic personality changes. So not just loss of memory, but um, people can become quite cruel. Um, and that can be particularly damaging because it's not just the loss of the person. They're still there, um, but it is the loss of the person because they are a different person and um, cannot necessarily recognize you. It's be devastating. Mm. Uh, well, let's take a break. Um, we were talking with Sadie Hoagland. She's a, uh, a Utah native. Uh, and uh, got her Ph.D. from University of Utah. She's now uh, teaching at uh, University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And her uh, new collection uh, of stories is called American Grief in Four Stages. Her website is sadiehoagland.com. We'll have more following this break. UPR's debunked podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research offering services to the community, and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. We are so grateful to everyone who participated in Giving Tuesday Now and made a donation to Utah Public Radio. To everyone who supported us this spring while we adapt and deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, we sincerely thank you. We believe that generosity has the power to unite and heal communities in times of crisis. Your support in any amount makes a difference. If you've missed Giving Tuesday now, there's still time for your gift at upr.org. Thank you. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, We're talking with Sadie Hoagland, who... Uh, is a professor at the uh, University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Uh, she's a Utah native, and uh, the new uh, or collection of stories it's out. I think just uh, in the fall, last uh, late last year. American grief in four stages. Um, and uh, so, uh, by the way, City Hogland, maybe later in the program we talk about. Uh, you have a, another book coming out next year, right? Yes. Uh, tell us br- briefly the subject of that book. Sure, that book is entitled Strange Children. It's coming out in the spring of 2021, and that book takes place in Utah and is about a polygamous community. Yeah, so uh, if we have time at the end, we'll uh, talk a bit about that. It'll be very interesting. Uh, so I'm, I'm quoting from one of the reviews of your book, American Grief in Four Stages. By the way, the reviews have been very positive. Congratulations. Um, so uh, let's see, the reviewer says... Uh, this is indicative of the world uh, Hoagland presents in these stories, one easily recognizable as our own, yet slightly bizarre. These strange details producing the exact feeling of being immersed in grief. Um, for example, and maybe have you give some examples, one that stood out to me was is the, uh, the story, uh, In July, Flags Are Everywhere. Uh, in this world, grandparents are drafted into a war. Yeah, so... Um some of the stories do play with reality and have a bit of a magical realism or speculative fiction quality. And um, I can talk about that story specifically um, in a minute, but first I'll say that I think the reason that I did that was it was important for me to have a little bit of 
uh, distance between our world and the world of these stories at times because they are heavy, and I, I sort of almost wanted, I think, a protection or a layer between the reader and the story, the world of the story. So having them be slightly different, I think, was almost like an amulet in that sense for me. Um, but I also think it allowed me to think about um, the kind of tension between the possible and the impossible. So with In July, flags are everywhere. It seems like, oh, impossible. We would never send grandparents to war, um, and they would never all die at once. Um, and yet there are things that happen uh, my grandparents, three of the four of them died within 11 months, which is incredibly bad luck um, and a little bit unbelievable. Um, and so part of the story is me processing that event that happened when I was much younger. But it also is this, you know, it kind of asks us to think about, well, is it is it even stranger that we send our, our young men uh, and women, um, possibly? Um, so I ask you to think about the fact that, that we send uh, people into these uh, situations of peril. But it also um, kind of uh, gets at that fact that a lot of times when grief happens, it feels like how, even though, even if it's not an unusual event, it feels like, how did that happen? There's that shock, right? That this seems like it was impossible. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's the, that phenomenon of how uh, life both stops and goes on at the same time. That's, uh, this, this reviewer references that, and I, I feel that as well. Yeah, I think people talk about that, um, that time passes very strangely after these kinds of events. Um, and that while you have, um, you know, you have this feeling that, you know, your life has altered forever by this one event or um, someone close to you dies, and that creates both a before and an after, right? Before and an after that event, it's this hallmark in your life. And yet at the, at the same time, in the, in the moment, you have to just get up and you have to shower. If you have children, you have to take care of your children and you have to eat. Uh, so you have this, this, you know, impetus to kind of keep living and keep going on and, and in our culture to even just keep working and, and things like that. Um, and that's very bizarre uh, feeling for people that are going through it. Remembering, of course, is is healing, but it's it's complicated, right? And that's one of the themes of the, the book: you know, grief and trauma are complicated. Uh, complicated, in fact, uh, in part by our culture. Remembering can be healing, but it's how we remember, and that's bound up in in the narrative, which can, I guess, can change over time or be complicated by by how someone died. Definitely, I think that, um, of course, with with more complicated grievings, there's there's the feelings of, you know, if someone committed suicide, there's definitely anger at that person and, and guilt, um, and that's complicated. But I think, um, too, even even when we're just sort of grieving a person, um, there can be a tendency to want to um, remember just the sort of wonderful things about them and never remember the fights that you had or the, the things that weren't perfect about them. And that can be difficult, too, because... Those things are there, and they're part of that person. But it can almost make it harder, because if you idealize the person, the loss becomes that much bigger, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you, you wrote a piece, it was a very interesting uh, uh, nonfiction piece, uh, giving advice on how to write about, how to write about grief, um, yeah. which I found very uh, interesting. Um and one piece of advice you uh, you said was you, you know you, you have to have a certain amount of courage you have to 
you can start easy, you can start at the edges, but uh, eventually you're going to have to going to have to face the the central, you know, central hard things. Yeah, I think this, and this probably comes a lot from my work as a professor in creative writing too. Is that um, in a lot of our when when anybody's writing anything, a lot of times um, you'll see I see drafts of work all the time, and the, and they'll see that usually the part of the story or the essay that is the most kind of messy and maybe needs the most revision is also the point where the writer is really at the depth of both their sort of emotional limit and their, you know, sort of their writing ability and they're, 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 they're in deep water and they're, <laughs> and they're treading and you can tell. And that's when my job as a, as a mentor and teacher is to try to help them navigate through that and so that they can kind of more smoothly enter into that sort of um, Noy Holland, who's a fabulous writer, likes to call it sort of the troubled heart of the piece. And I think that's absolutely true when you're writing um, about grief, is that um, I think a lot of people are tempted, and, and I've read a lot of pieces like this, are tempted to just write about how wonderful a person was, or they want to just, um, they want to eulogize and, and kind of celebrate the person, which is a wonderful impetus and should not be silenced in any way. But I think if you truly want to do the, the life justice and the person justice and, and also to write, if you're writing to heal, you have to eventually get into some of the things that, that are more difficult, um, some of the experiences that are harder to write about. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for a public audience, but I think if you, if you want to get into that, your life experience with the person, I think you'll do yourself and your writing the most justice by, by facing those challenges. Um, you talked a bit in this piece about um, how fiction can help people get places they hadn't been able to get with nonfiction. And you made a reference to a friend with an ill sibling, written about her sibling's illness uh, in nonfiction for years, but it was a fiction piece that helped to get at some of the resentments about caregiving. That in itself is, uh, you know, we we tend to we tend to want to hold up caregivers as noble and. Uh, <laughs> I think for the most part they are, but there can be some resentments, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think that's one of the burdens of being a caretaker is that um, we, we of course, think, and they are, you're right, they're noble and, and heroic, and they're doing incredible um, deeds of self-sacrifice and, and giving generously of themselves and their time. Um, and and, uh, and usually if they're doing it for a loved one, of course they would do it and, and don't mind at all. But that's not to say there aren't moments when it isn't very, very difficult and very, very frustrating, because that's a loss for for the person too. Um, as as all of us know, that if caregiving anybody, even a parent to a child, is like when you're spending that much time taking care of someone else, you are taking not not taking as much time for yourself, and you know you're giving up things. And of course, there's going to be moments of fatigue and stress and um, moments where you wish you had a day off, right? And um, I think that uh, particularly when it comes to death and hospice and um, caretaking, um, in that case it was a, as a mentally ill um, uh, neurodivergent uh, sibling that, that needed assistance full-time, um, in that case, of course, it's, it's, not, it's going to be unspoken that this is difficult. It's, it's hard to talk about how difficult that is. And so when a story reveals that, it can create some tension. Why do you think that is? Uh, I, I have some theories of my own, but why do you think that is? It's difficult to talk about how hard it is. Um, I think 
that uh, we like the story of the noble hero that, um, you know, this, that resilience thing again that, oh, just does their job and sort of stoically and um, can, you know, is tireless and can continue on and um, has to be the strong one. It's another sort of... Um, because someone else is suffering. And, th- and there's that feeling, too, of, oh, this person is suffering so much more than I am. Why would I complain? How I am so lucky. I'm the one up on two feet who's healthy. Um, and so I think there's that survivor guilt, too, right, um, that gets complicated in that as well. Uh, is there another passage that uh, that you could read for us for one of the stories? Sure. I will read the beginning of the. I'll read the very beginning of the book. Okay. Cavalier presentations of heartbreaking news. It was my birthday when I found out that all the birds were electric. Well, almost all of them sparrows, kestrels, wrens, ravens, and so on. Little feathered drones. They had no nests and flew on AAA batteries until they sputtered out and dropped dead like real birds falling out of the sky. I don't know what they did after they dropped because my mother didn't know. It was my birthday and my mother told me about the birds in my hometown in the same inappropriate way she delivered all matters of life and death, casually, standing across the kitchen island from me with one hand on the back of her hip and the other hand waving a sauce-covered spoon. This is how she told me the neighbor, Mr. Blue, had died and also how she told me she had cancer. This was the worst habit this cavalier presentation of heartbreaking revisions of our world. She hadn't always done it, but developed it after my oldest brother came out of the closet. She told me about him like this, the sauce backing the counter. She told me what I already knew, and I nodded, and she continued talking as if nothing had been revealed, as if everyone always knew everything. And for this, I blame my brother for telling her not only last, but two years after he told the rest of us. But that's his business. On my birthday, my mother had been talking about my father's retirement, what a smash it was, talking over a warm basil steam when she saw me looking out the sink window behind her at a little bird, a Rhenish bird. I know little of bird identification. I know generally which are supposed to be small and which big, and I'm confident I could spot a bald eagle from a mile away, but I'd never seen one in person before. It was my father's retirement, and then she saw me watching a bird, and it was, oh, would you look at that? We get such a variety of birds in the backyard now that they've gone electric. Who would have thought? I'm even beginning to think they sing more beautiful than the old ones, a little more bluesy. Uh, that is uh, from Cavalier Presentations of Heartbreaking News. That's the first story in American Grief in Four Stages. Sadie Hoagland is is the author. Uh, the line struck me that the, the mother is delivering this news, as she always uh, delivers such news casually. <laughs> yeah, um... I think that uh, there is a, um, a tendency we have uh, in our culture as well to, um, when, we're, when we're talking about uh, loss and trauma of, of those that are, um, are not, you know, that we're not affected by, uh, to talk about it in, in sort of a, a casual way. And uh, what the narrator experiences, and this comes out more later in the story, is, is that she uh, is... Uh, is deeply affected by uh, the loss of Mr. Blue. Her mother doesn't think that she will be. Um, then, of course, she would be deeply affected by her mother's news of her cancer. 
So her mother's coping technique uh, for these things is to just sort of always uh, just kind of say things as if nothing is happening. It's kind of a veil of denial around them. Um, and I think that in my experience um, and talking to other people since this book came out as well, people both give and receive news in very different ways. Um, and some of that is obviously a coping mechanism. Um, I think because I'm a writer, I have like an impractically large empathy center in my brain. <laughs> so sometimes when people tell me things that are, you know, don't think will, they don't think will upset me, really upset me. So I, I kind of, I feel for this narrator. Mm. Uh, and I think we can all relate. Uh, you know, we've all been in situations where very bad news has been delivered casually. And I think it is, as you say, a coping mechanism. Uh, by the way, uh, you said sometimes uh, a first line will just c- come to you uh, as this line. It was my birthday when I found out that all birds were electric. Uh, t- tell me about the process of then fleshing out this. You just get that line, and then then how do you flesh out the story? Yeah, um, I, got, I had that line in my head for a couple weeks, and then I was like, well, I just better sit down and write this. Um, and so usually what I do is I sit down and I uh, write, and I just sort of let the just think about, you know, okay, this woman, she's her birthday, what, what's going on here? And so I sort of explore that moment. And, um, and for me, I think that that, uh, that casual presentation um, became clear because I thought, well, if the mother is telling her that the birds are electric, what else is she telling her? What else has she told her? So that became kind of a question in my mind. And then usually what I do is I write sort of one sitting, I'll write most of the piece, but then I usually need to take a break from it, take a walk, take a week or so even, before I come back and, and think about what are the pieces of the story. So the last piece that came into that story for me was um, the fact that um, so the mother has cancer, and um, that didn't come in until actually I'd written the whole story and um, had come to the egg at the end of the story, which she compares to her own tumor. Um, and then it made sense, which why all of her own hesitation, what that, that the actual presentation of heartbreaking revisions about our world was going to be her own diagnosis that she had to tell her mother about. So that um, so there was an interesting way that, that the narrator in that piece, even for me as the writer, was dancing around it till the very end. Hmm. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with uh, Sadie Hoagland. Uh, her uh, collection of stories is called American Grief in Four Stages. It's out from West Virginia University uh, Press. We'll have more following this break. Support for the UPR-produced podcast Debunked made possible by the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, providing substance use disorder, mental health, and suicide prevention resources throughout Utah. Information at dsamh.utah.com. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming, especially in uncertain times. Please stay informed, but also know that whenever you want to find the perfect oasis, UPR2, our online classical music station, is available, and that's a wonderful thing, especially in uncertain times, at upr.org and on our app. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We reached our last segment uh, about oh, six minutes or so in this uh, brief last segment with uh, Sadie Hoagland. She's a Utah resident, 
uh, now is in Louisiana. She uh, teaches at uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette. Her collection of uh, stories is called American Grief in Four Stages. So Sadie Hoagland, um, I'd like to briefly talk about the, the upcoming book, uh, if that's okay. Anything last thing you'd like to say about American Grief in Four Stages? Um, you know, it was a, it's been a great experience to, to talk to readers and um, to hear what people have to say. So I hope that uh, I hope that your audience engages in that conversation as well. Uh, and that's uh, yeah, a very important conversation. Uh, so American Grief in Four Stages is out. By the way, SadieHoagland.com uh, is the website. Uh, so tell us the, the name of the, the book. Strange Children, the name of the book, right? Yes. Yeah, so it is a book that, um, it's, a, it's a strange book, appropriately with the title, um, because it has eight narrators, which is a lot. But um, it had, they're all first-person narration except for one, and they're all telling the story. They're all younger narrators as well. And they're all telling the story of their own place in this polygamous community and their own um, sort of vision of this community. And they're thinking about the, um, you know, they're, they're living in a tradition of revelation and testimony of sort of, if I say this, it is true. Um, and yet, with the multiple points of view, you can see that all of their truths don't necessarily line up. Um, that's the structure of the book. The plot of the book is that um, two of the, the teenagers fall in love and consummate that love. And as a result, the young man is exiled from polygamous community, which we know is a, is a phenomenon that happens in those communities. Um, and so he's exiled, and she is married off to his father. And uh, he then goes on to, uh, to commit um, sort of almost accidentally, um, and I'm very much thinking of him not just as a as a predator, which he'll become in the book, but as a victim, too, um, of his own circumstances, he, he commits a murder, um, and that crime sort of reverberates back to the community, and um, the community is already facing sort of internal conflicts in the adult, super, in, in the adult structure, and then um, this external pressure creates even uh, more of a um, pressure on the community to disintegrate, really. Um, and so it tells that story, uh, and the narrators go through that sort of process of, of watching a world crumble. Yeah, very interesting. Um, we only have about a minute for this. Um, you wrote an interesting piece, and you can click to this on your website, sadiehoagland.com. Uh, you say when people, when you tell people your, your novels about uh, isolated polygamous community, they say, "Did you grow up in a polygamous community?" And then you, la- then that launches you into thoughts. And this piece is all about, uh, uh, you know, an outsider writing about an insider community. Yes, um, and yeah, that was that's definitely a challenge because while this is a fictional community, completely fictional, it definitely has parallels in communities that are real right? and that exist in reality. So that that made me uh, it gave me a lot of pause. It made me think a lot about how I wanted to represent these people, um, particularly because um, I felt that uh, they deserved uh, my deepest sense of empathy in the sense that I didn't want to just fetishize them or think about, you know, put a judgment on what polygamous is that is, that is my judgment, um, and to really kind of do research and find out what they would tell me about their communities. So it led me to um, lots of really interesting conversations with people who had grown up in those communities and lots of interesting reading. Um, and I really felt that 
that it is important to realize that, you know, you all, we all have our opinions about something because we, we grew up a certain way, but had we grown up in that community, we likely would not feel that way, right? Um, so I think it's important to remember that, that it's all relative. And, um, and it, was, it was a wonderful experience learning about things. It was difficult, too, though. There's a lot of darkness um, and abuse and uh, systemic problems um, that you all probably know about from the news. Yeah. I, yeah, certainly true. Well, look forward to that. It's coming out next year? Yeah, 2021. Okay. Uh, American Grief in Four Stages, the uh, story collection is out now, and uh, the website is sadiehoagland.com. Sadie Hoagland teaches at University of Louisiana, Lafayette. Um, Utah resident, got her PhD at the University of Utah. Uh, Sadie Hoagland, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. I've really enjoyed talking. Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. During a normal spring season, my extended family would have gathered to celebrate birthdays, holidays, the monthly Sunday night dinner, and even a sister's night. As it is currently the coronavirus stay safe, stay home spring of 2020, we have done none of those things. At least, we've done none of those things in person. Instead, like many of you, we have texted birthday wishes with lots of emojis, shared photos of decorated Easter eggs, and recorded updates on video messaging apps. With more time at home, both my husband and my brother-in-law exchanged snapshots of their latest bakes. Thus far, we've received mouth-watering photos of cinnamon rolls, tea scones, five-grain bread, and mini quiches. It's like having the great British baking show in my inbox. Even if we can't actually taste every roll, pie, or tart, we ooh and we ah, living vicariously through the lucky souls who are quarantining at the baker's house. All of the virtual culinary connections gave me an idea. I wanted to invite aunts, uncles, and cousins for a video conference cook-along. We would make a recipe together through online video conferencing, then share our results and taste in real time. We scheduled the day and hour for Easter morning, then texted a photo of the family recipe to everyone. We chose my sister's crepes for its use of common ingredients and a straightforward process, though we recognized pouring crepe batter requires a bit of finesse, so it would be fun to see how things turned out. At the appointed time, family members filtered into the video conference with mixing bowls in hand. I was surprised by how comforting it felt to see my sisters and brothers-in-law in their familiar kitchens. Usually, we would be standing side by side in one of those kitchens, putting the finishing touches on side dishes for a big family meal. Instead, I loved seeing them in their homes, wearing their aprons. I especially enjoyed watching my young niece propped up on the counter, tilting her head back and forth, enamored with her image on the screen. We got to measuring right away, though at times my daughters took over the egg cracking and whisking as I leaned towards the screen, caught up in conversation. It's interesting how smells, flavors, and familiar movements uncover memories and stories. One sister talked about the best crepes she ever ate from a street vendor near the entrance to Central Park in New York City. 
Another sister described their family crepe traditions, since it is the go-to birthday meal for her husband. We even held a brief debate on how to pronounce our recipe, crepes or crepes. We finally settled on the Americanized version since none of us have completed even one French lesson. During our call, we compared apron fashion, shared recent happenings, and even checked in on the health of our parents, feeling grateful that our father had just come through his bout with COVID-19 days earlier. Oh, and we cooked, too. Everyone at their own pace. My sister shared a useful tip for a smooth batter. Warm milk and room temperature eggs. Once you blend in the melted butter and sugar, the result is velvety smooth and ready for the pan. As expected, everyone's first crepes were a tad unsightly, but they all improved as we found the best pan temperature. As the thin pancakes piled up, children buzzed around the kitchens, filling their crepes with hazelnut chocolate spread, whipped cream, strawberries, and even sausages. My daughter took pride in holding her work of art up to the screen for all to admire. We agreed to gather again for a learning session, following step-by-step as one of our baking brothers-in-law walked us through more complicated recipes. A couple young cousins also made a plan for a cook-along to decorate cupcakes. In the end, we spent less than an hour on the video call, though we gained a sense of connection and normalcy on a holiday usually spent together. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanity and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.